This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Francesa Podcast. Coming to you as always on the uh, Bet Rivers Network or wherever you Go for your podcast fix. Uh, and remember, for all of your wagering needs, it's Bet Rivers in New York and New Jersey. Play Sugar House in Connecticut as we head into March. And March today came in in the New York area, or the last day of February, I should say. We got our first little bit of snow. First time I've seen snow all winter. Uh, and it comes on the last day of February. So we're ready for March. Spring training underway. We're a week away from the conference tournaments. Next thing you know, it'll be Selection Sunday, and away we go. And then we have made it through a very short, brief interlude since the Super Bowl. So it's not been as long this year since the Super Bowl was backed up. Two things before I get to your emails. I remember you can always send your emails uh, to Mike Francis, a podcast at gmail.com. Com. Mike Francis, a podcast at gmail.com for all of your um, all of your uh, podcasts uh, to send anything for an email, send it there. Okay, now, two things I want to get to before I get to your emails. Number one, when the Knicks got hot, I tweeted that this would be something Knicks fans would love, that this was going to be a real bolster to their chemistry. It has been every bit that. They have played better than they've played in a long time. They now have won six games in a row. He has gotten a rotation. He, being the head coach, has gotten a rotation that right now he's very confident in. He has it the way he likes it. There are basically seven guys you can count on every night. And Hart has given them a big lift. Uh, Obviously, he is a guy who plays very hard. And... He can score, he can defend, he gets up on the boards, he gets a lot of rebounds, uh, and he has given them a very, very big lift. And with Brunson and Hart, they are getting closer. The one thing you would like, everyone keeps asking me, what does it take for the Knicks to get to the top? Well, in essence, I like this team if you could exchange Randall for a better lead guy. He's not good enough to carry the team in the postseason. Brunson is everything you could have hoped for. I told you he would be. I told you he would be a great signing at a lot more than they paid for him. I've always been a huge Brunson guy. I'm clearly been a very big Villanova guy in the last 10 years. So these guys clearly have been guys that I am very familiar with. Okay. And I had a great admiration for Brunson was a tremendous collegiate. He's a great winning player. These guys come from a great winning background and it shows. And they have really lifted the Knicks. Number two. And this bears a lot of watching. In my estimation right now, a week before the conference tournaments, and the Big East will be fascinating next week from a couple of standpoints. One, you always worry, think about St. John's, which needs to run the whole tournament and gets to play in Madison Square Garden. I don't think they're good enough. 
Number two, Villanova needs to run the table to get into the big to get into the NCAA tournament this year. But that team is capable of running that tournament now. The way they're playing and with guys healthy and with everything starting to fall into place. Watch them this last week, tonight against Seton Hall, Saturday against UConn, and then next week in the Big East tournament, they have a legit, they have to win the Big East tournament to get to the NCAA tournament. They don't have the resume. They will not make it. But they could run the table and win the Big East. I don't think there's any question they have the ability to do that. So keep an eye on that. The other thing is this. The best team in my mind in the country, pound for pound, player for player, is Alabama. But Alabama right now is in this mass confusion state based on this capital murder charge that has rocked the program. We know they have made big mistakes. We know the coaches made big mistakes. We know the athletic administrations made big mistakes. They have left Miller on the floor. He, uh, he went for 41 against South Carolina. He went for 24, including uh, big points down the stretch in the comeback against Arkansas. He is the best player in the country. He is the best player in the country right now. And he is the kind of guy who could lead a team to a championship. And that team is loaded with length and with everything you need to win a championship. But are those guys, are two of their starters, including Miller, even going to be there? And will that team even be a fraction of what it was by the time the tournament starts? We don't know. There's still so much we don't know about what happened that night and whether they can be charged as accessories to a crime, which was a capital murder. And in the state of Alabama, if, you, if someone is killed in a car, it is a capital murder. And this is a capital murder case. And two Alabama starters, including Miller, could be charged as accessories. It's still a possibility. Now, obviously, they've lawyered up. Obviously, they've gotten PR firms. They've gotten everything to try and see if they can spin this thing. But the truth's going to come out, and we don't know exactly what their roles were and how big they were. Did he transport the gun there? Did he block the car that led to the murder? That kind of stuff. That means you're an accessory to a capital murder. So this is all still to unfold. And let's be honest. Oates has made some colossal mistakes. Just colossal mistakes in handling this thing. So it's going to be very interesting to see where we go from here. Now, to your emails, like we said, Mike Francesa, podcast at gmail.com. All right, here we go. Bo starts us off. What Otani has done as a pitcher and a hitter is incredible. Obviously, he can't do both forever with his pitch of repertoire and velocity. Would he better serve his team as a closer in the future to protect his longevity? Here's my problem with Otani. The idea in baseball is to win. I understand putting on a show is important, but the idea is to win. And to me, you are not getting complete utilization out of the player at either position when you continue to play him at both positions. 
I'm not saying you cannot use him to an advantage at one of the positions rather than not use him at all. But the idea that you're going to continue to use him at both positions at full bore is not going to happen. So it, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's, a, it's been a question that has been discussed forever. Would you rather have a premier pitcher or would you rather who plays once every five days? And now in the world of modern baseball, is usually a 200-inning performer? Or would you rather have an everyday performer who can hit 40 home runs? I doubt we're looking at it as a relief pitcher because that would be such that it would impact, I think, if he became their closer, it would impact his offense a lot. I don't think that will happen. So Otani is a unique gift, but does it help you that much when it comes to wins and losses? Considering the price. David in New York, you have said that the five greatest players in no order are LeBron, Michael, Kareem, Russell, and Wilt. The reason I say no order is you can decide in the modern game, clearly, Michael and LeBron are more valuable because the worth of the center has been diminished in the world of the three-point land. Okay, it's become a different game. It's become an outside-in game rather than an inside-out game. So the, the game has dr- changed dramatically since the days of when Russell and Wilt and even Kareem, you know, patrolled the league and dominated the league. The rest of the question was, is it because he was the first to pass away and that it's been almost 25 years that I feel Wilt doesn't get the love or praise that he deserves? There has never been a figure who did what Wilt did. Wilt averaged 50 points a game. 50 points a game. Okay? Nobody could even approach that. He got 55 rebounds in a playoff game. 55 rebounds in a playoff game. His averages were high 30s, high 20s rebounds for years. He could do whatever he wanted to. He wanted to score 70, he scored 70. He wanted to lead the league in assists, led the league in assists. He wanted to get 50 rebounds, he got 50 rebounds. He did whatever he wanted. But one thing he didn't do was he didn't win all the time because he was a complex human who believed in enjoying life much more than winning, while Russell only cared about winning, and it showed winning 11 of 13 years. That's why Russell is the most prolific winner in any sport in history. He won two he won in San Francisco, he won in the Olympics, and he won 11 of 13 in Boston. I remember one year he had a sprained ankle, otherwise he wins that year. But the reason I put it as the three centers, Wilt, Russell, and Kareem, no one on that level, and then the two complete players, both ends of the floor, dynamic in every way, Michael and LeBron, and that's why I come up with those five, and then you go from there, and you want to go Larry Bird next, you want to go Oscar Robinson next, you want to go Jerry West next, you want to go wherever you want to go next, that's fine, okay? The bottom line, and I mention Larry Bird a lot for this reason, Larry Bird in his prime was that good. His back was an issue. Larry Bird, there's only three guys who won the MVP three straight years in the, in the NBA, three straight years. Russell did it, Wilt did it, and Larry Bird did it. That's it. I remember Russell and Wilt were winning them against each other. 
That's why I mentioned him a lot in the sixth spot. Gary asks, did you see Kovacs pitch or Maravich play in person? The answer is yes on one and no on the other. I saw Kovacs pitch in person once. I never saw Pistol Pete in person. I saw him on TV many times. Actually met him once, but that wasn't in a basketball setting. Um, Kovacs was the most dominant pitcher that anybody has ever seen in baseball. Now, I wasn't around when Walter Johnson was throwing the ball by everybody. But in my lifetime, Koufax is the most dominant pitcher and nobody's second. And Maravich was a magician. But again, a guy who the show was more important than the W. That's how he was brought up by his dad. That's how his game was at LSU. That's how his game remained as he went to the Atlanta Hawks and wrecked a very good team that had a black nucleus that was very affronted by Pistol Pete. Maravich had great gifts. He was a magician. He was an artist. But he had a troubled life and a troubled career for that reason. And it was a a show. Remember, he scored 40 points a game without a three-point goal. If he had a three-point goal, he would have scored 60 points a game. Uh, Ethan, while I agree New York and Houston are the two best teams in the AL, don't you think Cleveland should be given at least some consideration? They were one game away from beating the Yankees and didn't lose anything in the offseason. The reason I don't put Cleveland with the Yankees in Houston, and I put Houston 1 and Yankees 2, is that... Cleveland got a lot of performances last year from a lot of unexpected places. To get those two years in a row and get the performances they got from some pitches in their bullpen is something that's hard to to draw on. Everything has to go well. Now, remember, they're managed by the guy who, if he remains healthy, is the best manager in baseball in my mind. Francona is the best. And when he's not there, it wrecks the team. And when he's there, he gives the team an extra 10 wins a year. He's that good. Um... I think that they're dangerous, but I don't think they're on the level of the other two. Greg uh, from Albany, with college basketball about to hit its busy time of year and listening to what you said about Jay a few podcasts ago, uh, my question is where would you rank Jamie Dixon, Bo Ryan as coaches given their consistent success despite never winning a national title? Well, there are a lot of guys. Ryan had a great run. He went to the Final Four a couple of times. He never won the national championship. Um, Jamie's done a very good job at TCU. He did a good job at Pittsburgh. He's a good coach. He's still only in his 50s, so he's got time. Um, there are a lot of great coaches that didn't win that I had great respect for. You know, um, Kansas State had a coach named Jack Hartman who was a great coach. He never got a championship. John Chaney won a championship at Chaney State, but at Temple he had great teams and he had great years and he never won a championship. Um, there's a lot of guys that, that haven't won championships. It happens. You know, uh, it doesn't mean they weren't really successful and have piled up division titles and, you know, sometimes Final Fours or trips to the Final Eight and Final Fours. And, you know, uh, it's hard to win championships. It really is. 
that's why you have to have so much respect for the guys who've won multiple championships because it's not easy to do. Regarding Aaron Judge, this is Kevin. Regarding Aaron Judge, you could argue that his 2022 performance was the best by a Yankee since Babe Ruth. Uh, to update you or to argue with you for a second, it wasn't. It's not better than Mantle's best years. Mantle's best years were a higher war, if you want to use that. But also, Mantle's 56 was a better year than Judge's year last year. Judge had an amazing year last year. But Mantle led the major leagues in every big offensive statistic. Not the national, not the American League, the major leagues. So he not only won the Triple Crown, he led the major leagues in all the big, uh, including on-base percentage, slugging percentage, home runs, RBIs, batting average. That's an incredible year. And his war was higher than judges it was last year. Um, he has the highest war, I believe. Mantle's two years in the 50s are the highest wars since Ruth, I believe. I think Bonds had one that was in there that was that close. Uh, but this is not to diminish Judge's year. Judge's year last year was sensational. Absolutely sensational. And am I ready to put him on the level of Mantle or DiMaggio? Not yet. Not yet. But he is a very impressive player. Let's see what the next couple of years bring. Josh, the situation between Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick between 95 and 2000 still fascinates me. And I still feel that the whole story uh, of why Parcells left New England and Belichick quit the Jets has never come out. Do you believe there's more to the story? If so, why hasn't it come out? I don't believe there's more to the story. I think the story is pretty well told. Crafton, and I am very familiar with this story on, on every level, having lived a lot of it. Um, Kraft and Bill could not get along. By the time they got to their fourth season, the Super Bowl season, they were done. They were just looking for ways to get away from each other. Now, what we didn't know at the time was that when Bill left to go to the Jets and he took Belichick with him, what we didn't know is that in the last year when, Be- when Belichick had been fired in Cleveland and then went and joined the Pats, not as defensive coordinator that year they went to the Super Bowl against Green Bay because Al Groh was a defensive coordinator, but as an add-on coach who Kraft didn't even want to pay but agreed to bring him on. Belichick was, worked a lot with the secondary and did a brilliant job with the defense that year, but he was not the defensive coordinator in title. And he came with Parcells to New York, but when it came time to run the Jets – what well, we didn't realize that Belichick had developed a close relationship behind the scenes with Kraft. So that's why Kraft, rather, Bill, rather than deal with the uncertainties that were with the Jets, and none of us knew about his feelings, and we didn't know that he had this whole relationship built up with Kraft, and he jumped and went to Kraft, and the rest is history. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything more to that. I mean, it's a pretty well-pronounced story. Um... Mike, if they asked, what would be your plan for St. John's on how to build a program from scratch? I, I don't think it's about building a program from scratch. I, it, listen, it's a very complicated time. It's a time where if you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal, you are at a severe disadvantage. 
getting players with what's going on with NIL is very important. Being able to recruit players through the portal, and let's be honest, teams are poaching players from other teams, which is what's driving coaches crazy. It's not only going out and getting an unhappy player. Now they are recruiting players off your roster. They're recruiting your best players off your roster. This is going on. This is the Wild West now, which has led coaches to leave and has led to some craziness. Now, Bayon made some statements he had to backtrack on because he attacked a lot of schools and some of them weren't fair, which he apologized for. Did this, was this a factor in why Jay left? I think it was because I don't think Jay wanted to be part of the system. It's not what he believed in. I think he liked to develop players over a period of years, and he didn't want to deal with that distraction, the idea of having to go out and recruit other people's players just to stay even. Some guys will, will, will like that. Other guys will find that highly distasteful. But that's the world you live in now. Now, if you do not have a school that has a lot of resources, and St. John's doesn't have a tremendous amount of resources, it is difficult to compete. Now, what they need to do is just, I think, they're going to head towards another coach. I think this coach has given it a good effort. I think it just hasn't worked for a variety of reasons. They've been close to breaking through. They just haven't been able to do it. They haven't put the right group together. They're not without ability. I think one thing they've done very poorly is they do not understand how important it is to have three-point shooters on your team. You have to have a requisite number of guys who can win on the three-point line. Otherwise, you are going to lose too many games that are close. And they are not a good team on the perimeter. And that is something that has to be able to happen. You've got to bang down threes to win a championship now. You can't, if you can't do it, it's a big problem. It's a huge problem. Now, Ian follows it up with more St. John's. Do you think Rick Pitino could end up at St. John's or Georgetown if he's willing to leave Iona? I don't think it's any secret that Rick is itching towards taking one more run at the big time. He is a great coach. He's an all-time coach. There's no disputing that who has had problems in his past, which we can't dispute either. Without going back and reliving them, there's been problems. But there's no questioning his ability as a coach or as a program builder. Kloos did a great job at Iona. Rick has done a very good job at Iona also. It'd be interesting to see how Iona, which is playing very well right now, does this year. Needs to get in the NCAA tournament. Let's see if they do. I think they will. Now, I don't think there's any secret. There is some flirtation going on with Rick and Georgetown. I have not heard anything of that kind with St. John's. With Georgetown, I think it's, they're kicking the tires on Patino. I don't think there's any question. And I think Patino is very interested. And I think that would be a huge plus for the Big East. Because right now, the power in the Big East has moved into the middle of the country. Villanova's down because Jay Wright's gone. Let's see if they can get back up and have a big NCAA, um, a big Big East tournament and make the NCAA tournament. That would put them back in their standing. Um, you have 
this power in the league right now is in Marquette, Creighton, Xavier. It's not in the East with Villanova, St. John's, Georgetown. Seton Hall, they have to pick it up. UConn is the one that's playing well enough to be a problem and could be a could win the Big East tournament also. They're good enough. A little erratic, but they have talent. The bottom line is he would be a big plus at Georgetown. I don't think there's any question. I have not heard, I have heard rumors about him at Georgetown. I have not heard anything about him at St. John's. And I do think he will take one more run at the big time. I do. Uh, Kevin emails, if Lombardi did not step down after Super Bowl II, oh, this is a big if, if, would the Packers have made it to Super Bowl III? What would the damage to Lombardi's legacy have been had he lost to Joe Willie? Would his name still be on the trophy? Well, I think part of Lombardi's aura of his legacy is that he lost the first playoff game he ever coached in. 1960 title game against the Eagles. They lost a close game. And he told them in the room, we will never finish nine yards short again. At the time, there was talk of him going to the Giants as the head coach. He didn't go. He stayed in Green Bay. And the rest is history. They went on to a string of consecutive championships. They never lost another playoff game, ever. Lombardi was 9-1 in playoff games. He was 0-1, then he was 9-0. In that time, he won five titles, two Super Bowls, Super Bowl one, Super Bowl two. In both those games, in both those games, they were not better than the Cowboys. In one game, they were clearly inferior to the Cowboys in law and won. The other game, you could have called it a flip of a coin, and they won. They won two very, very close games. And the ice bowl broke, obviously, a lot of hearts in Dallas. Now, if he had gone, do I think they would have won Super Bowl three? I don't think they would have won the NFC portion of it. I think they were aging, and I don't think they had another year in them. So I don't think they would have gotten to Super Bowl three. That would be my, since we're giving suppositions, I don't think they would have gotten to Super Bowl three. So I think if he had gotten to the Super Bowl and lost, it would have chipped at his aura a little bit. But if they didn't make the Super Bowl, I don't think it would have been a big deal. It wouldn't have broken his aura of winning all the time in the postseason. That was the aura. Not getting there one year would not have detracted from anything. They were getting old, the Packers. There was no question. They were aging. They were, I don't think they had another championship in them. But again, it's all hypothetical because he had a way of making teams better. He just was a brilliant, brilliant leader and coach. Could you share your view of terrestrial sports talk radio today? Um, no. There's nothing good going to come out of that. All it's going to do is create a lot of headlines. And if I say anything that is in any way critical of anybody, it is going to be splashed across newspapers, cause all kinds of mass controversy. So there's no reason for me to do that. So I'll pass only because why would I want to do that? I have stayed away from... I don't, I don't appear on very many shows. I, I really, you could count them on one hand. Other than appearing with Doug, I don't appear anywhere. Um, I did Sid's show once. I've only been on fan on retirement shows. I have not been on the fan at any time 
since I left, not not once. Um, so I don't do any local radio or anything like that on purpose. Uh, the one part of this that I will answer is, could a radio station pay two big personalities? They used to, our bosses used to tell us, you guys are going to price the show. There's going to come a point where we can't afford both of you. We always knew there was that eventuality. Were we eventually headed for that? If we had stayed together for another 10 years, probably. There would have come a point where they couldn't have afforded us. Not both of us. So uh, I, don't, I think when Dog left in the summer of 08, um, I don't think that – I don't think it was – at that point yet, but it was getting close. So, but I heard that a lot from management, that there was going to come a time where you guys were going to price yourselves, where we can't pay one show, two people this much money. We did hear that. Christina in Brooklyn, do you think there was anything the 90s Knicks could have done to get past the Jordan Bulls at least once? You know, they were close a couple of times. I can't say there's anything they could have done. They did a lot it was just dealing with Jordan and Pippen, dealing with the greatness of Jordan, his ability in the close game, his ability to make the play when it was needed. Um, nobody else beat them. So I don't know if the Knicks could have been. Now, the Knicks, like we know, there was at least one year, and we all know the game, you know, that could have turned the series. We call it the Charles Smith game, okay? So we know there was a game and a year, but that was the only opportunity they really ever had. And remember, the Bulls on all six championships never went to a seventh game. They never played a seventh game in any of those series. Six championships, not one seventh game. Uh, Chris asks, what are your thoughts on the new pitch clock as a baseball fan of many years? I'm sure you remember the 70 days when the game was played at a quicker pace. Uh, do you think it will improve the game? Listen, I think, uh, it's going to take some getting used to for everybody. I think in the beginning, all these rules and the clock and everything are going to be a distraction. I think there'll come a point where that won't be anymore. If you go back if you're a baseball fan, I would tell you to do this. Go back and take the 1960 World Series or the 1961-62 World Series and watch the games. The first thing that's going to jump out at you is that the batter does not leave the batter's box. And we have now reached the point where the batter leaves the batter's box on every pitch, and some guys are pronounced about it. A lot of people blame Mike Hargrove for this. But I have talked to... Top hitters about this. I've talked to Bernie Williams about this. I've talked to Big Poppy about this. And they have told me, I'll be damned if I'm going to be told how I'm going to hit. I utilize that to put pressure. I step out to put pressure on the pitcher to intensify the moment. I want to break his rhythm. I want to set things up that I'm in control. And I, I remember Bernie saying, I won't adhere to that. I remember Big Poppy saying, I wouldn't adhere to that. So let's see how much they enforce the batter being in the batter's box. And number two, 
than the pitcher adhering to the clock. So let's see how this works. If it's quicker, it'll be much better because the game has gone to a snail's pace where there isn't enough action and the game is going too long. But remember, it's in the eye of the beholder because, as you've heard me mention this many times, what you take as tedious in July is great sports drama in October. The fact that you can slow the moment down to almost stopping it in baseball, the batter steps in. He fouls the pitch off. He steps out. You have a time to think the pitch. What's he going to do? Is he going to come with another fastball? He went inside. Is he going to go inside? Is he going to go outside? Is he going to go to a curveball? Is he going to... It gives you a chance to actually, which you don't do in other sports, it's to slow the drama down to almost suspended animation where you can actually feel it and taste it and live it. And I think it creates great drama in big games. But in June or July, it's tedious. You don't want a 15-minute at-bat. In October, that 15-minute at-bat will be part of a baseball law. That's just the way it works. What doesn't work in June works well in October. It's just that's the way the sport is. Nobody complains about a great three-and-a-half-hour game that's, you know, one in the bottom of the ninth inning in October. They don't want a four-hour game in June. That's the bottom line. So this is more for the regular season than it is the postseason, but it is needed. The sport has slowed to a snail's pace, and it's so much home run strikeout that there isn't enough action on the base path. There isn't enough action in the outfield. We don't have people moving on the base paths fielders moving for the ball, dynamic throws, that kind of stuff. If you go back into the 60s and 70s, how outfielders threw the ball was a huge part of the lore of baseball, and we discussed it. What right fielder had the best arm? You can't run on this guy. You can't go first to third on this guy. You can't score on a sax fly on this guy. We never even talk about that stuff anymore. That's not even part of baseball anymore. And that's been to its detriment. They are now trying to put the action back in the game and take some of the air out of it. We'll see how successful they are. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan. And you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today wherever you get your podcasts.